Is there such a thing as evil forces in the world? I don't mean do bad things happen. We all know that they do. But is there some kind of invisible force we cannot see that opposes the good in the world? Our culture loves this idea. Good versus evil. It's popular in movies and TV shows. But people disagree about it in reality. Some people point to evil as a reason why they think God doesn't exist. Or that he must not be good if he does. Others say there's no such thing, just greater and lesser comfort. Well, our passage this morning shows Jesus and his disciples meeting opposition of this kind. Not by religious leaders, not by Roman government officials, but by demonic forces. Jesus confronts a supernatural force in the spiritual realm that contributes to the evil in the world and the undoing of God's purposes for his kingdom. They're working against the kingdom of God. My guess is I don't need to convince you if you're here today that evil does exist. And if you're skeptical about the role of demonic activity, then I want to challenge you. How do we account for the evil in the world? Is it only a matter of conditioning or personality or mental health that leads to the evil deeds of the world? Those things, while they may contribute to evil, still leave us wanting. They don't seem to provide a complete account. And I would submit to you that a belief in evil spiritual forces is not as crazy as you might think. In fact, I think it makes more sense of our experience of reality than an explanation of evil apart from it. Our text this morning portrays the Lord Jesus meeting a man possessed by demons. And the description of him is one of bondage and rebellion against God. It's an attack against the very creation and design for the world. This is not the first time Jesus has confronted a demon, but it is, in fact, the most extensive, the most graphic account of any kind of exorcism in the entire Bible. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses. And as you're turning there, allow me to catch you up to speed about what's been happening in the life of Jesus and the disciples. If you're new to this study, the Gospel of Mark is the earliest account of the life of Jesus as we have it. It was written likely within one generation of the events that it describes. And likely witnesses to these events would have still been alive as the book was circulating among Christian churches to be able to confirm or deny it. Mark, the author of the gospel, was a disciple of Peter, the disciple of Jesus, which is why many of the stories have the characteristics of eyewitness accounts. Peter likely relayed all this uh, experience and information to Mark, who then wrote them down for the young church at Rome in order to encourage them in their faith uh, amidst persecution, as well as an evangelistic tool for those who have not heard of Jesus yet. Mark wants his audience to know that Jesus is the divine Son of God who came to save people from their sins. 
by his death and resurrection. Jesus and his disciples just crossed the Sea of Galilee. That's what just happened previously. And along the way, they're met with hurricane-like winds that send the disciples fearing for their lives. And then Jesus speaks and calms the storm. And then the disciples are met with an even greater fear for witnessing Jesus exercise power and authority over a force of nature. It's soon after this storm that they would reach the shore where our story picks up today. Let's read together Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 now. As they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, and on, on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by, with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This might be one of the most interesting texts in the whole book. It raises a lot of questions, uh, and questions that Mark doesn't really even answer for us. For example, why pigs? How many demons were there? Why did they drown themselves? What happens to them afterwards? What was the financial value of these herds? Mark doesn't answer these kinds of questions, but 
uh, that should give us a clue as to what Mark's intent is in this passage. It's meant to keep us on track. We want to be careful to pay attention to the things that Mark wants us to see. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. I think the main thing that Mark is showing us in this story is that real evil exists, but Jesus has authority over it. So we should worship him accordingly. Real evil exists, but Jesus has authority over it. So we should worship him accordingly. That's the summary headline, and I think that will be clear as we go through the text. But the first thing I want to spend time on showing you in the text is first that demons are dangerous. Demons are dangerous. I feel like I've talked a lot about demons through this study of the Gospel of Mark, uh, which is not the most comfortable thing to do, uh, but it's there. This is actually the seventh time demons are mentioned. Uh, so this is what, what going through a book of the Bible does for us. But imagine being one of the disciples with Jesus. You've been sailing for hours through the night. We're not sure if it's nighttime when they reach the shore or if it's the next day. Some people think they were fishing before they landed on the shore. Either way, if you went through a hurricane-like storm like the disciples did, fearing for your lives, having a near-death experience, shoveling water out of the boat, fearing even more the person of Jesus, you would be relieved to get to the shore. You would probably be excited to finally touch down on solid ground where it's safe, you can use your legs, you're not confined. And then the minute that they touch the ground, a wild man literally sprints to Jesus. He's described in verses 3 through 5. He's basically been lowered to the status of a wild beast. He's living among the tombs, among dead people. The tombs were basically caverns or caves carved out of mountains where people would leave bodies. They weren't like uh, perfectly curated lawns with art-like tombstones and flowers decorating the area. They were dark, cold places separated from society with a stench. And this man lives there. Luke says that as he ran to Jesus, the man for a long time wore no clothes. So the man's naked. Matthew says that he was so well known in the area that people didn't travel along there for fear of bumping into him. So this man, with no clothes, runs, crying out all day and night, is what verse 5 says. This man appears to be in agony. And it's not as though he's simply out of his mind. It's not as though in the ancient world they didn't know the difference between mental health and someone like this. This guy had superhuman strength. It says he was bound many times with chains and shackles and he wrenched them apart. He was a raging man. So Jesus and the disciples, as soon as they go through a raging storm, are met on the shore by a raging man who also could not be contained by men. He's naked, screaming, bloody, dirt and probably sores and scars all over his body. Immediately runs to Jesus. And then what we have is a situation in which demons 
are removing the very image of God from the man, degrading him, dehumanizing him. He's more beast than man at this point. Not only is he unable to think and reason with people, but he's harming his own body. I assume for one of two reasons. Either he's cutting himself with jagged rocks because the demons are trying to vandalize or even kill an image bearer, or he himself is in such agony that he's repeatedly trying to put himself to death and failing. Demonic forces are very real and dangerous. And I assume that if you're a Christian, you already know this, but there are different views about the the role that demons play in the world today. So I want to give you two points of pastoral advice. We need to be careful of falling into one of two pitfalls when thinking about demonic activity. Uh, The first mistake that people often make here in America is to over-spiritualize them. Some people ascribe much more power and involvement to demons than what is probably accurate. For example, every obstacle in your life is not an example of demonic opposition. Some people, when they get a headache, say, I just can't get rid of this demon. Or they get sucked into another form of this, of over-spiritualizing, is they getting getting sucked into superstition and non-biblical ways of either avoiding or interacting with demons. Our culture has at times obsessed over uh, the spiritual realm. We have a national holiday that celebrates it to an extent. We've got shows and movies that explore these things. And with that fascination comes a lot of extra and I would say non-biblical ways of thinking about it. But this is playing with fire. You may meet people who want to mess around with things like Ouija boards, uh, but just let me encourage you not to mess with them. One thing we'll learn from this passage is that Jesus has authority over demons, but we do not. So be careful. When it comes to over-spiritualizing, many people have asked whether or not Christians can be possessed by demons, and I think that's a fair question. And I'll just tell you, I don't think they can. And uh, the reason I say that is because Jesus has already taught about how a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand in chapter 3. And the Bible says that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit makes his home within you, making your body a temple for the Lord. The Holy Spirit tabernacles or dwells in your heart. And I doubt that the Holy Spirit would allow a demon to dwell in the same place. I don't have time to go over every possible situation you might be able to think about, but I want you to recognize that uh, the danger of obsessing with the occult. There's a real danger, and that's the reason Israel had laws saying they weren't allowed to participate in witchcraft or mediums of any kind. And I think what we can learn from this story is at least that they exist and they are dangerous, but Jesus has authority over them. Well, that's one of the pitfalls, over-spiritualizing. The other pitfall we sometimes make is under-spiritualizing them. So many in America think that they're just simply not real and that there are scientific explanations for the phenomena that people experience. But friends, even though I don't think Christians can be possessed by demons, that doesn't mean they aren't dangerous to us. Don't take them lightly. Many, if not most, of our difficulty is spiritual, even though we may not recognize it at first. 
we're at war with the desires of our flesh, Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Because in doing that, you may provide a foothold for the devil. He says that in Ephesians 4, 26-29. Peter says that Satan prowls around like a lion ready to pounce. Peter, who is with Jesus here in this story. So brothers and sisters, be careful not to make the mistake of of over or under spiritualizing demons. They are very real and dangerous. And here I should say that if you don't think you're if you do think that you're experiencing any kind of activity to please reach out to the elders uh, so we can counsel you and pray for you and help you think through uh, that experience in your life. Don't overestimate, don't underestimate. That's another way to say it. To put these two pitfalls another way, don't act as if you have authority over them. We're not warriors for God. But on the flip side, don't ignore them. Well, that's point one. Demons are real and they are dangerous. Point two is Jesus has authority over the armies of hell. And this is mainly seen in verses 6 through 13. Look with me again at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. These kinds of passages are hard to understand and not easy to teach, but I love reading through them for a few reasons. The demons know Jesus. They recognize him, just like in chapter 1. They identify him for us. In chapter 1, the demon says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Well, here in this story, the demons are even more precise. Jesus, Son of the Most High God, which is language specifically used for the God of Israel, the one true God who is the Creator and God over all things. This title can be tracked all the way back to Genesis chapter 14, when Abram meets a man named Melchizedek, and he is described as a priest to the Most High God. And then they sacrifice to God. The demons recognize Jesus and His authority and they beg Him not to torment them. They call out to the highest power they can think of. That's what it means when it says, I adjure you by God. But Jesus doesn't need to appeal to any higher authority. There is no higher power. He is the highest power. I love this passage because it shows that demons actually have a better Christology at this point than the disciples do. Did you notice that in the previous section of verses, the disciples, after the storm is calmed, they are left in fear asking themselves, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And Mark doesn't answer. But here in the next section, the demons do Recognize that the demons, uh, while they recognize Jesus, they're not worshiping him. Submitting to him, but not worshiping. They're groveling before him because they know who he is. We need to be careful that we ourselves don't settle for just knowledge about Jesus. Knowing simple facts without actually knowing him as a person. I love reading biographies, but I only learn facts about the people I read about. I don't know what they're actually like as a person. 
how they would respond to me, what it's like to have a conversation with them. Similarly, we need to guard ourselves from storing up facts of knowledge and theology about Jesus while skipping out on enjoying his presence. These demons recognize Jesus, but they don't know him in that way. They only know what he's capable of. Matthew, in this account, records the demons asking Jesus, Have you come here to torment us before the time? Which is referring to the time that Jesus will return again and destroy all evil once and for all. And from this fact, one pastor said that the demons have not only correct Christology, but have correct eschatology as well. They know who he is and what he's eventually going to do to them, and so they beg him. They beg for mercy. But they don't submit to him, which is a reminder that even the most sinister and rebellious things have no choice but to obey what Jesus says. That's true for people as well. It's up to you to decide whether or not you'll believe and follow Christ. But as it's written, as Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess to God. It's just a matter of whether or not you'll do it willingly now or unwillingly then. These demons know and tremble before Jesus. They fear being tormented or destroyed and Apparently, being sent into pigs is a better sentence than whatever Jesus would have done. Why did they want to go into the pigs? Uh, There are lots of speculations about this. I think it's just a safe and a good answer to say, we don't really know, and leave it at that. Why so many pigs? I don't really know that either, but my guess is that this is not just one herd, but a collection of herds. It was probably a collection of the city's herds all in one place, which is just another sign that Jesus has entered a Gentile area because people are herding an unclean animal. Notice before they go into the pigs, Jesus asks the demon for its name, and he says, My name is Legion, for we are many, in verse 9. That word legion uh, is is a military term that normally is used to describe a Roman unit. And that unit is usually somewhere between five and 6,000 soldiers. So however many demons were in this man, whether it was as many as 6,000, as few as 2,000, based on the herd of pigs, we don't really know. However many demons it was, it shows that Jesus has authority not just in a strength contest against weak demons, but against a whole army of them. All Jesus has to do is speak, and they come out of the man. And just notice with me the lack of ritualistic incense burning, the lack of sacrifice of any kind, or symbols in Jesus' interaction with the demons. He drives them out by speaking. First he muzzles the storm, now he muzzles the raging man. Look at verse 13. It says, he gave them permission. I love that verse. The demons can't do anything apart from the permission of Jesus. And from this point, we have to wrestle with the fact that demons don't do anything outside the control of God's sovereignty. How can that be? Why is that? God does all things for his glory, ultimately, we know. 
but we're not always given the reason for particular events. We know that God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. He said, you can go this far, but no further. But it doesn't say why in the whole book. is basically Job and his friends speculating why it's happening. What is clear is that Satan can't go any farther than what God has allowed him to go. Satan and his armies are on a leash. Luther said that even the devil is still, the God's, is still God's devil. The Apostle Paul also felt that he was afflicted by Satan, but recognized God's allowance of it. And of all the people you would think in the New Testament who would not be afflicted by demons or Satan, you would think it'd be Paul. He's written half the New Testament. He's an apostle, but he does. And even though he does, Paul never blames God or questions his goodness. Listen to the way Paul describes his affliction in 2 Corinthians 12. He says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul sees this thorn in his side as a messenger of Satan, and yet at the same time, a means by which Christ's power is perfected in him. Why does God allow evil in the world? He's not told us why specifically. Deuteronomy 29 says, The secret things belong to God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. God hasn't told us everything, but he has told us that he is in control. And he has shown us how he overcomes evil. Our worst enemy is ourselves. Our personal sin makes us guilty before a holy God. And we would deserve punishment if, if left up to us. Our bondage to sin is a worse affliction even than this man, this tormented man faced. Because our bondage from sin is not a temporary one, but an eternal one. But God, being rich in love and mercy, sent His Son, Jesus. Not to immediately destroy evil and us along with it, but to make a way for sinners to be saved out of darkness and into His glorious light. Jesus came as the sacrificial Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And apart from Him, our greatest concern would be the evil in our hearts. Because we would be placed under the wrath of God who calms the sea and casts out the demons with a word. But Christ has set us free from sin and nailing it to the cross, Scripture says, rising from the grave three days later so that we go from being enemies of God to adopted children. There is evil in the world, that's true, it remains, but God did not leave us for our own ruin. Instead, He uses evil to bring about his purposes on earth 
for the good of His people and for His glory. That's what we see happening here in this story as well. Thousands of pigs die. Not everyone would call that a a great success or a great victory. A man was tormented for a long time, but he was redeemed. He met Jesus. He learned what mercy was. And he was used by God to become the first missionary to the Gentiles. He's the only one in the story that wants to go with Jesus, but Jesus has him return to the city that he came from as a witness to what the Lord had done for him. Look again at verse 19. It says, And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That word mercy is so important. Why? Because we are tempted to believe when we read this passage that this was just a poor, innocent man who was saved from the devil. But mercy, by definition, is the withholding of what is due. What was the man without the demons? Still a sinner in need of saving grace. Still dead in his trespasses and sins. Still a son of Satan, whether possessed by demons or not. Based on what we know from Mark, he basically seems like he's the reason that Jesus came across the sea in the first place. Jesus initiated, said, let's go to the other sea now. He casts out this man, and then he immediately leaves. That's his trip. That's the first trip to the Gentile world. See the compassion of the Lord in the way that he journeyed to save this soul. One who I think you and I could both readily admit was probably farther gone than anyone that we could think of. You couldn't think up of a scenario of a person who was more beyond God's help. People couldn't contain him. He was cast out. He was a shell of demons, a broken body, a corrupted mind. I promise you, if Jesus can save this man, he can save your coworker or your family member or your friend who doesn't believe in Jesus. Whoever you think might be too far gone or beyond saving. I don't know why we get that idea into our heads that the Lord can't save someone in our life when we have examples like this in Scripture. Why did Jesus drown pigs, you might ask? Trick question, he didn't. The demons did. We have to be careful not to get the wrong idea. However, I'm not saying that Scripture belittles animals or creation, but what does it say about Jesus' priorities? Human beings are made in the image of God to reflect His glory. And the Lord Jesus cares for us more than He cares about animals. He didn't die on the cross for animals. He died on the cross for you and me. Jesus and only Jesus can free us from bondage. Just like he was the only one who could free this man from demons. Satan wants to destroy and corrupt the image of God, but Jesus restores and perfects it. Jesus has authority over the armies of hell. Two quick points of application for you. First, to parents, the best defense that you can give your kids 
against evil forces is a knowledge of who Jesus is. We can't control what master they serve, but we can teach them who Jesus is and what authority he has. Second, works well for parents, but also for the rest of us, don't be afraid to call out evil for what it is. That's good for us. It's a good reminder. It's good to remind ourselves that Satan runs this world. As long as the gospel is is being preached, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But it's good and right to acknowledge evil when we see it. What happened in in Uvalde was evil. It was not just a bad event. Point number three. How should we respond to the Most High God? How should we respond to the Most High God? The resolution of this story is both a beautiful and amazing picture of grace and yet also unsettling. Why do I say that? Well, first, the herdsmen nearby flee and they may have been upset because of the financial loss. I imagine that was really large, but Mark doesn't indicate that. They go into the city and the country and tell people and they come out and see what happened. And it says earlier, just one, one detail that Mark notes was that the man was always crying out night and day. I don't know how close by the civilization was from him, but part of me wonders if some people noticed the quiet and came out. They go out to see the man who was a celebrity in the area due to his condition, and they see him, not as they remember, but sitting there, clothed, in his right mind, and it says they were afraid. And this fear is just like the fear of the disciples after Jesus calms the sea. It's a fear that an unstoppable force that they knew about has somehow been tamed by an even greater power. And when they hear about the pigs, they should have fallen at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him, but instead they beg him to leave their midst. This is just another proof, one of many, that seeing is not believing. Notice there's no indication of doubts in their mind about what happened. They knew this man well. They knew how far gone he was. They had no explanation for him being in his right mind and clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. The people who witnessed this or heard of it and saw did not fear Jesus because they mistook him for a moral teacher or a respectable rabbi. Nor did they cast him out because they thought he was a lunatic. They asked him to leave because they witnessed the unmistakable power of the Most High God. We keep bumping into stories like this as we make our way through the gospel. And each time I just become more convinced. God not only doesn't owe us any signs about himself, but he has given us so many in his word already. Over and over again, he's revealed himself and shown his power. And even for the original audience, he was begged to leave. They witnessed God's power, but they did not know Christ's compassion. If you are here today and you don't know Jesus, or you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, 
be careful that you don't push God away because you don't understand His love for you. Whatever pain you have, Jesus can heal you. Trust Him to do so. Don't push Him away when met with His power like the herdsman. That's how the masses respond. Then there's the man who was restored. And there's some more Mark and irony here for you. I've become a big fan of the Gospel of Mark because there's so much irony packed into it. Did you notice that three times Jesus is begged? The first time by the demons, the second by the herdsmen, and in both times Jesus complies. But when the restored man begs Jesus to go with him, he says no. Why would Jesus say yes to demons and yes to those who are afraid of him and no to the one who loves him? After all, if God loves someone, he'll grant their requests, won't he? Apparently not. It's the same for us today in our lives. How many times have we questioned our love for God because He has said no or not yet to our prayers? It's very easy to do when we know so little about what our lives will be. But what would your life be like? Just think for a moment through the timeline of your life and all the prayer requests you've ever had for God at different stages. What would your life be like if God only ever said yes to every single one of your prayers? I don't know about you. It's very loving to us in saying no to our prayers. I can certainly think of times like that. A mark of a Christian maturity is admitting that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But he does. Just like Paul's thorn, which... He asked to be removed three times, and the Lord said no. But don't mistake God's no to be disfavor. Jesus had something much greater in mind for this man's life. The man could see no better thing to do for his life than to go with Jesus wherever he was going. But Jesus wasn't done with him yet. Instead, Jesus tells him to go to the people who knew him. Sometimes our ideas of what serving the Lord looks like uh, differ from what God's ideas are. For this man, it was to tell his friends how much the Lord had done for him. Notice he didn't tell him to go out and exercise the rest of the demons in the area. Neither does Jesus parade the man around to show off what he had done. That's, That's, I think, what we would be tempted to do, right? When we hear an amazing conversion story or a celebrity confesses Christ. We want to parade them around and show them off to the world. But Jesus has a different plan. Jesus gives him a mission that is much more personal. He is simply to go to his friends in the Decapolis, which just means um, ten cities. He's to go to the cities in the area, tell them what God has done for him. And this is a command that Jesus would later give to his disciples and then all believers before his ascension. It's his blueprint, if you will, for kingdom growth. Those who have experienced the mercy of Christ are to go and tell others about the work God has done for them in their hearts. 
I mentioned earlier that this was the first missionary to the Gentile world. And uh, the reason I say that is because in chapter 7, Jesus is going to make his way back to this region. And people, when they hear he's arrived, are going to bring to him a man that is deaf and mute. And my only guess is that they know about Jesus because of this man and his transformation. The right response is the obedience the healed man shows here. This picture of this man sitting clothed in his right mind at the feet of Jesus is one of discipleship. The right response to this display of Christ's authority and power is not to run away in fear or to cast Jesus out of your life. It's rather to cling to him. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ have been freed from the bondage of darkness, just as this man was freed from legion. There's one more subtle display of Christ's divinity in this passage. I wonder if you caught it. As if the demon's confession or his power in commanding them and giving them permission was not enough. Look again at what Jesus says in verses 19 and then Mark's comment in verse 20. Jesus says, Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And then what does the man do in verse 20? He goes around to the cities proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. It's a subtle way of identifying the acts of Jesus and the acts of the Lord, the Most High God. We are meant to walk away with two things from this story. In admiration for the absolute power and authority of Jesus over evil. And second, we're to reflect on the mercy that we have been shown by God in Christ. Because the reality is that, is that every person who's ever turned from their sin and trusted in Jesus has been shown a greater mercy than this man in this story. We've been given eternal life. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do if with His love He befriend thee. For anyone who is in Christ, he or she is a new creation and has been reconciled to God. One last piece of irony for you to take home. Jesus shows His mercy for us by becoming the afflicted. In this story, we see a man cast out of a city, naked and mangled flesh from cuts, In Mark chapter 15, we'll see another man taken out of the city, cast out by his people, stripped of his dignity, his flesh torn open, and hung on the cross. Demons likely cheered that day, not knowing that by his wounds we are healed, that by the blood of the Lamb that was poured out, sinners were ransomed and released from the devil's grip secured into eternal life. So yes, real evil exists, and it is deadly. It seeks to corrupt and destroy the image of God that we are created to reflect. But Jesus has authority over evil, and has victory. his victory is seen in a small way in this story as thousands of demons cower before him. But an eternal victory and an everlasting act of mercy is seen at the cross where Jesus canceled our record of debt 
So how will you respond to the Son of the Most High God? Will you respond like the masses in fear of being close to Jesus? Or as the one who was healed, who fears being anywhere but with Jesus?